Okay, welcome everyone who's come to this session. This is the tip-off to Same Year Schools Month, which amazingly for the folks from Beluga who are running this, this is the fourth year. Uh, the first three years, so it actually started before the pandemic began, but we still, I guess, there was a foresight because of what Beluga was doing online with technology to record sessions, do video sessions, and now those sessions from the last three years are up and available in beluga.org's video library. So we're appreciative of them. I think in the first year alone, if Evan is on, there was somewhere over a million impressions for all of the programs that had run across all this, the channels. And, and what we decided to do this year as we were planning was to narrow the focus a little bit. Uh, I think there's some folks who are having some Zoom fatigue. Um, <laughs> And do a little bit more audio, you know, capitalizing on this concept of Twitter spaces. Some will have folks join as the month goes on. Some like this, as we first launch, will be more of a recording and a conversation amongst us. And so if you look at the topics that Beluga and, and Seem here, I guess, jointly came up with, there are some niche topics. Uh, and, and I guess anything in mental health is niche when you're when you're talking about more than just the general aspect of what is mental health um, uh, uh, from a from a thirty thousand foot view. But there's topics like you know using tech for good. I know Mary Alice is on right here, and uh, you know how what's the interplay between sports and why we see greater increases in mental health outcomes with with student athletes. But this particular one, since it's the first of the session. Uh, for the first of the month, you know, the focus here, the title of it is Five and Five, the Mental Health Conversation. I'll give some quick background on why it's named that, and then we'll kick it off to our two co-hosts in this particular case, Rachel and Stacy, and we'll let them introduce themselves. But why, why Five and Five? Why did we pick that topic? It's, it's funny because it's a, it's a hashtag that we use in a lot of our social channels and it's something that we talk about when we go in to programming, not just in schools, whether it's offices, whether it's sports teams. And it's almost like a counterculture message to move away from what's been sold to us for so long in this space. And it's the statistic that's been hammered into our head through the boilerplate templates that come with press releases when people talk about mental health, when you see Bell Let's Talk Day in Canada, when you see a news broadcast about, you know, questioning whether or not there's worse mental health outcomes happening now than in previous years, that statistic that gets hammered into our head over and over again is one in five people are mentally ill. One in five people are mentally ill. And that's an attempt at trying to make sense of what we do in a lot of other spaces outside of mental health. Well, you know, two in five men get prostate cancer by a certain age x and five women have breast cancer by a certain age and in the one sense statistics are used to, as a normalization tool to try to say hey look in the case of mental health 20 percent of people that's a lot of people you should check up on your mental health and i think the unfortunate thing is because the way that mental health has been talked about for so long by the powers that be through those press releases through the media broadcasts is it's actually done the opposite. Instead of normalizing and getting more and more folks to open up, it's actually created a, a, a topic that's become binary. You're either part of the one in five mentally ill group or you're not. And if you're not, what are you? And I'm sure our, our, our host today will be able to double down with me on this is when I go and I present 
at schools and offices. And I ask people, okay, there's one in five. And I'll actually ask five folks to stand up. I'll tell them they're going to have to share a very vulnerable story with the rest of the group. They get all nervous. And then I let four of them sit down. And you see the relief on their face. And there's one person standing there by themselves. And I ask the other four, how do you feel now relative to how you felt 10 seconds ago? And the answers are always consistently relieved. No more pressure. It's not me. I'm not the spotlight. It's not on me. And I ask, well, what does that mean then? If we're talking about mental health, if you're not like, let's call it, you know, Jennifer, who's standing up here with me, and you're not part of that one in five group where Eric and Jennifer are mentally ill, what are you? What, what category do you fall in when it comes to describing your mental health? And the answers, the four answers that I always get are healthy, fine, normal, and okay. So that means that what this statistic has done, it's created this idea that you're either in the mentally ill group and you have this thing called depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, in schools, obviously the most uh, diagnosed one right now with students is ADHD. And you either have that and you meet the criteria for the DSM-5 and you fit into that category or you don't and this topic doesn't apply to you. And as much as I'm talking about it facetiously now from this angle, I also recognize that I was you know, guilty guy number one, who for most of my life working in professional sports, that was the perspective of which I saw it because that's the way it was talked about. So, oh, those people who deal with that stuff will be supportive of them when they open up and share. But yeah, that doesn't apply to me. And then when you go through your own challenges and you start to realize mental health is not just this genetic thing that you're born with, that you happen to have, but it's a confluence of many factors, your lifestyle, your lifestyle choices, your chronic stress that you live through, your traumatic events that you have, large traumatic events, small traumatic events where you continue to think about what if scenarios over and over again. It's a buildup in our system over time. And then when you look at it that way, that it's a buildup, that means we all live on a continuum. And if we all live on a continuum that means, now going back to the topic and the title of this, this, this uh, session, five and five, it means every person on the planet deals with mental health challenges. And because we're not able to measure, the same way someone who turns their ankle, you could have two people walking down the street, they both turn their ankle the same way. How do you compare that one person is feeling more pain than the other, even though both their ankles blow up and look purple because it's a sprain? We don't know who's actually hurting more. That's such a subjective concept. And the same thing is true when we live through all those life experience factors, all those lifestyle factors, all those genetic factors that accumulate in our system. There's no way to say Eric's been through more than Rachel's been. Rachel's been through more than Stacy's been. And so instead of looking at it through that lens, the idea is to look at it as just like you could hear the sirens in the background of New York City. Um <laughs> instead of looking at it through that lens of let me compare who's got it worse, we're in this category, I'm going to say the elephant in the room that maybe some people don't like as much, but I'm just going to say it. If we continue with campaigns like Stop the Stigma, all we're doing is furthering the concept of how stigma exists because we're saying, hey, those of us who are affected, who are in this one and five group, we want you mean people who are creating stigma and unfair opinions and judgments about the rest of us to stop doing what you're doing. That doesn't get rid of stigma. That furthers and doubles down on stigma. So the only way we ever create an ongoing narrative 
And I think uh, <laughs> Rachel will be happy about that because of the name of her organization, okay, is by continuing to open up and share stories. Stories are teaching tools, but they're normalization tools. Yep. And greater than any campaign is getting on, and this is why Rachel and I have done many of these together, is getting on channels like this, then getting with partners like a Beluga who can share it widely and going, this is what I've been through. So that another person can hear our stories and say, wow, I've been through that too. And in having gone through that too, what did you do about it? So if that helps create a, an arc for how the rest of this hour will go, I hope that was, was helpful. I've not shared my own personal story yet. I will. I want to be respectful of the two co-presenters that I have with me. So Rachel Barbeau will be very happy that I pronounce her last name correctly <laughs> because unfortunately too many people botch it and call it Baraboo or mm -hmm. all these other different ones. So Rachel, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, uh, first of all, uh, being a speaker and then a broadcaster before that and now an, an upcoming author, like especially in the speaking realm, when other people are speaking, you, you probably heard me in the background. Mm, yeah, cheering <laughs> you on. And, and I recognize I do that, one, because I'm just an audible person, but two, because I give people what I need when I'm, I'm speaking and I just can't help but agree with you wholeheartedly from the bottom of my heart. Um, I, I will say this, and it's just kind of a bold statement to, to start this out. Um, I have suffered from clinical depression in the past. I battle anxiety currently. I have uh, dealt with suicidal ideations in the past in a major way. And I'm not going to lie to anybody out there and tell you that that it the, those ideations don't cross my mind from mm -hmm. in, in the in the current in my current life. Mm -hmm. I now have a battle plan for what I do in those moments. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know I have a battle plan for people I can call, and I also know that based on what I call my dark night of the soul, which was, you know, a couple of years ago, my, about almost four years ago, two months after my mom passed away of cancer, where I had, and this is a trigger warning for anybody that, that's listening, but I had the perfect storm of crap hit me. You know, I'd lost my mom, gone through a breakup, um, was, was broke because I'd been taking care of my mom and not working. So I was worried about losing my house. And then I was also dealing with two nights of sleep deprivation. And so those, all those factors built up, right? And I had what I, again, my dark night of the soul where I had serious ideations and was very, very close to, to taking my own life. Um, where I am now is, is, is not like that night. They might be a momentary fleeting thought mm -hmm. and I know what to do with it now. But I, I'm here to take off the mask. And that's what we say in our movement, changing the narrative. And we've worked with over 60 colleges, high school, K through five, Big Ten, Big 12, Northern Sun, Border Patrol, law enforcement in multiple states. We say take off the mask, the mask that you're hiding behind. And I love what you said about these, some of these campaigns actually furthering the, the divide between us. Because I think if we can tell people um, that, hey, no, we're all normal, right? And mm -hmm. everybody has mental health, but most people struggle. Yep. Most people have thoughts. Most people, and it's what we do with them. And, and how do we battle back against them? We just had a, I'll say very briefly and then turn it over. We just had a team member of ours that I'm changing the narrative. Her son took his life two weeks ago. Oh. And she, said she said to us and, and we're actually doing a space later on tonight she said um and i agree by the way on the zoom fatigue you know people can listen all day long but they're they're kind of zoomed out in this world 
But she said to us, she said he was so happy. The kid was so happy. He was going to buy a house next week, closing on a house. And then she came back and she said, turns out I'm un- uncovering some things where he wasn't so happy. And, I, and we're, what she's going to talk about tonight and what I want to share with people are, are there are plenty of happy people out there that have, have moments that are really hard that, um, that could alter their life, the outcome of their life and others. And it's what do we do with those moments? And that's where I'm boldly taking off my mask and standing up radically vulnerable and saying, I've been where you've been. I've walked where you've walked and I've currently and most recently been there and, and I won't let you down. Well, obviously, you know, I've, I've done a number of sessions with you and know that your willingness to be vulnerable is always there. When you say taking off the mask and you talk about the loss of my mother, right? And is there a person on this planet who can't relate to traumatically losing someone who is special in their life? Even if you're a young student who's talking about losing a grandparent, that's a pivotal moment in a, in a child's life. I still remember back to losing my grandfather and I, and I eerily can feel the way that it was shared with me when I found out about it. It was mm-hmm. the first pivotal figure in my life. So one is you're normalizing and you're changing that narrative as per your organization by sharing the what and the how and yep. not just sharing the label. And then, you know, you're doing it in a way, it's such an open way that when you talk about suicidal ideation, I think for those of us who have felt them, which I think is the majority of the planet, right? Yes. Like, and, and Thank yet, you for saying and yet, it. Thank you for saying it. Well, well, but here's the thing is, so there were 15 million people last year in the U.S. who reported feeling suicidal ideation, which means the number was probably closer to 30 million. Right. And if that was just within one year, okay, now consider that extrapolated over the course of someone's life. And if we could talk about suicidal ideation the way that we can talk about back pain, yes. right, that's yes. the way that it should be. Why should it be that way? Because for everyone who will listen to this, there's only so many outcomes that can happen when you deal with the plate getting more and more full over time. When the plate gets full over time and the water overflows in that bucket or whatever analogy you want to use, the system can only take so much. And then the system starts to break down and has these error messages that are messages of self-harm yep. that we all get. And, you know, Rachel, you described it and then I'm going to introduce Stacy because I want to hear some of her story um, in terms of. If you're open, Stacey, it sounds like you are to share, you know, like Rachel did on, on the personal side of things is it that's in co- like I, I know that we can look at thoughts on a neuronal level and go, OK, that's the reason why that person voted for Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Like here it is in that neuron explaining what that re- it's a confluence of many things together. So in the same way with suicidal ideation, no one can look inside and say, well, Okay, that's the reason why that person feels a certain way. The only thing that we know is that human beings go from a place of they're in the moment, they're in their parasympathetic response, they're able to experience life, and then all of a sudden the sympathetic response zooms, and now they get these things called ideations. Why, if that is such a normal outcome, scary that it's normal, but it is normal, why is that something we're afraid to talk about when it's happening so often and people are hiding in shame behind it, right? And so that's hopefully what these sessions will do is by all of us being more and more open about this, the things that they do not talk about, I'm using air quotes as I'm, as I'm saying that, that will lay a foundation for other people to go, oh, it's right. Like we talk about 
heart attacks that way. We talk about back pain that way. Why don't we talk about suicidal ideation that way? It's not a character flaw. That's a health outcome. Okay. Yeah. And, was... and, and may I say this really quickly before? Yeah. But, and you, you nailed it. If we can start to talk about it, hey, that successful, let me just use me for an example. That successful person that's happily married and has kids, has got a book coming out and used to be a sportscaster. What? She's had those thoughts? Mm-hmm. Like, she's dealt with those? She's battled those? Yes. And if I if I can 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 say that and and share that with another human being that you're not defective, you're not weak, you're not broken, and now hey, let's create a plan for when you do so that you don't um, want to carry out that ideation, right? Like you yep. don't go and and act on that ideation. But knowing that we're going to have, and I thought it was a great analogy of, of the plates getting full and the water seeping over. What are we going to do when that happens? And, and it is fantastic. And the more that you say it and that I say it and that Stacy says it and everybody that, that has ever struggled stands up and says, no, it's all of us. Right. Yep. It's not the yep. one. It's all of us. The, the less people feel defective and broken and the less hopefully that they go and act on these things, because that's kind of my my been my message as of late is, hey, happy people struggle, too, you know, <laughs> And, and and what is and what is even happy right because right. like, that's right. subjective a- outwardly happy right like yep. oh by the world standards you know because right. people are like this beauty queen stepping off off her you know off her balcony and this happened and that happened and he just won an award in nashville and then he took his life people are struggling and the more people like stacy like you like beluga like evan like everybody that's doing this live and we'll hear this later, stand up and say, I've been there, I'm walking through it. And here's what I do that helps. And here's some, you know, here's some things you can do too, the better off we're going to be. And that's how I think we end this, this plague that we're going through, to be honest with you. Yes. I love that. I love that. And it's not campaigns. It's, it's vulnerable sharing. So Stacy, in being fair to you, because we now have taken 19 minutes before we've got a chance to introduce you. The floor is yours. I'd love to hear, you know, I've read so much about you in terms of what you shared, some of the books that you're reading, some of the programs that you get involved in. Um, and if we, we haven't lost you yet, because I see, still see you on mute, but hopefully you're, you're hearing this. So there you go, as I, as, as I introduce you. But in the education space, Evan brought us together. It sounds like you're both a student of this yourself, mm. have lived experience, and you geek out on it the way that Rachel and I do. Yeah, yeah, well... First and foremost, thank you for inviting me to this important, crucial conversation that is really important in this time that, that we're facing. You know, you, you said in your introduction how stories are normalization tools and stories are not just normalization tools for others, but they're normalization tools first for us, mm-hmm. right? And so when we learn to disassociate ourselves from our stories. And we say our stories as a part of who we are and a part of um, the history of how we came to be in this moment. It certainly um, can tra- has the power to transform us. While you were talking, I know Rachel brought up um, Dark Night of the Soul, which I happen to have Thomas More's book on my desk highlighted <laughs> right here, of course, right in 
for those who are listening and are, aren't necessarily familiar where that terminology comes from, you know, bring, invite an educator to a conversation and here's what you get back, <laughs> right? Um, but it comes from um, the Spanish mystic and poet, John of the Cross, right? And in the 1500s <clears throat> and really indicates not only this deep um, psychological right sickness that we're, we're talking about that in today's day and age we call mental health but that trial that we go through and i'm just going to read a couple salient quotes that mm -hmm. i think frame this really nicely and kind of normalizes this idea of what we're talking about here when we talk about our own individual dark nights that nobody can go through for us um, but that is very human and a very part of the healing process. Um, and I and I highly recommend, like, if anybody is thinking about this work, this 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 book by Thomas More is a great place to start. I'm going to start here. A true dark night of the soul is not a surface challenge, but a development that takes you away from the joy of your ordinary life. This is not just a feeling, but a rupture in your very being, and it may take a long while to get through to the other end of it. Wow. Depression is a psychological sickness. A dark night is a spiritual trial. The dark night saves you from being stuck in your small life. It makes you a hero. It grows you into your fate and into being a responsive member of your community. We lack powerful communal rituals that would offer support and guidance in our society. Our developmental models of a human life account for progress, but not major shifts in being, linear thinking. So much a part of modern life affects the way we understand our very lives. We evolve and develop, but we don't transform. We imagine growing like a skyscraper under construction, reaching to the sky, not like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. And then this last part, tell your story to whoever will listen to it with respect with respect. And so I, I share that and, I, and, and, I, and I'm starting there because this is the space that you are creating a respectful space for someone like me, like Rachel, others to tell their stories. And so mine started um, when I was three years old. Before you even, before you even get into <laughs> yeah, your story, please, I just got to say that like, as you were, cause I, I have not read that book. Like, right. I, and mm. and I, I love that you obviously Rachel Ha either has that term or she'll share with us she, she read it and as you're like reading those things especially the first couple of lines i was like she's calling me out right now yeah, <laughs> yeah. because it's, it's, it's so human like if you're willing to like put the mirror and look in the mirror and look at yourself i don't know that there's a person that can't relate to those lines that are shared yep. because so many of us like we want to feel we want to be engaged we want to be engrossed we want to be in the moment and then it's like something's off and we don't feel there and we don't feel connected. And why do we not feel connected? And what are we hiding from? And are we actively doing it or is it happening to us? And anyway, I, I want to share. Thank you for mm -hmm. reading that because it really resonated and it, it, it made me self-reflect. It was it was a great reading. Thank you. Mm, of course. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So to your point about the mirror. So at three years old, um, I had this pivotal, my first existential memory. I was at my grandma's house crawled up onto the little bathroom counter. I was by myself for the first time in the bathroom. The family was all outside the bathroom. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I had this moment of like, whoa, that's not me in the mirror. But like, this isn't like me, me either. 
I'm this other thing. I'm this, I'm this presence, right? <laughs> I, I like not right. You're three years old, nonverbal. I don't know what it means, but I had this like moment of understanding um, nonverbal. And so then at five, I was sexually abused by a babysitter across wow. the street from my house. And from that moment on until I was um, 40, probably 43, 45, I'm 48 now. Um, I didn't even know that really happened. I had repressed it. Um, I had disassociated from it so completely that I had no idea um, until I started therapy. We had we had my brother-in-law committed suicide. And because of his suicide, um, many of us in, in the family had started to go to therapy. And what the, the thing about therapy is that a lot of people don't understand is many times it's harder after you start right? You think you're going in for one thing and then all these other things start to unravel. And so, um, I, I went through it seven years of, of therapy, digging up the past <clears throat> and through that process really started to realize that, um, I was taking a ton of medications. I mean, antidepressants, Valium, you name it. I ADHD meds. I had taken everything that you could think to take. Um, and I'm a super high performer, right? Like mm -hmm. super, super high, strong, high, not high, strong, but high performer. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't an athlete, but I'm an elite performer in business and in my work. And so I just, I couldn't ever understand why I was always unsettled on the inside. And I just channeled that anxious energy into my work. Mm -hmm. And when that no longer worked for me, and I broke down, and I mean, I broke down to the core when I started to gain little insights and understanding. Um, I started working with a um, mindfulness coach, and I was attracted to him because he had spent years in a Buddhist meditation center, and I, I knew he had something, an unlock with, like, meditation. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted that. I wanted to learn how to access kind of what I sensed in him. And so for the last two years, um, I've tried every type of, in three years, really holistic, you name it. I've read the research on neuroscience, you know, atomic habits. I mean, from all that kind of stuff to um, cold showers, cold plunges, um, you know, intermittent fasting. I mean, you name it, uh, breath work. I've probably tried it. Um, psychedelic mushrooms, right? Like you name it, I've tried it. <laughs> and um and just have really allowed myself to accept myself on this journey. And the more I do that, the more confident I become, the more calm I become, the more assured I become in myself and trust myself, trust myself. I couldn't trust myself. And so um, it's, it's a really important conversation. And I'm glad we're having it today. So, so what you just shared, again, in the spirit of creating safe space and willingness to be open, sharing the existential thought. I would call it slightly crisis, even at three years old um, and the sexual abuse and the therapy and the things that you've tried is more than what I would say most people, again, using air quotes, are willing to share. So one, thank you. Mm. Um, two, you know, I, I think to like where we're at in society with what social media is. And I damn, you know, Rachel knows this. I damn social media for their algorithms more than anyone because of what they do promote versus what they don't promote. But the yep. fascinating thing for where we are at in the age of social media is it's created this ability when you read that passage from Dark Knight of the Soul and and it's created this opportunity for people to like who are willing to be 
open the way the three of us are to go, oh, shit, okay, other people feel that weird thing. And no other time in society have you been able to collectively look at multiple people at the same time from your area of the country, outside of your area of the country, and other parts of the world and go, wow, there's similarity in what we're all feeling. And, and as you were describing that feeling that you had at three years old, I want to bring up two things, two quick stories. One is we were doing an event. We started doing programming back in 2018. And one of the schools that we went to was Loyola, Chicago. Mm. And it stuck out to me because there was this, this guy, you know, college student sitting. It was about 300 because it was for their student athletes. It was about 300 kids in the audience. And, and this one guy was, was sitting there by himself. We had a hockey player with us. And so this guy was a huge hockey fan. So I don't know if he was just geeking out on that. And we got to the Q&A part. And, you know, keep in mind, this is five years ago. So we've, it shows, like, how, how far we've come. You get the typical questions, you know, from, from the rest of the audience about, like, how do you get other people to open up, right? People are always asking questions about other people. That's the easiest way to start the, the flow of questions. And then this kid just stands up and goes, I have these feelings of disassociation where I like feel like I'm not in my body when I look in the mirror sometimes and like I'm almost hovering over myself. Can you describe if you've ever felt something like that and felt something like that? And what is that exactly? And where does it come from? And I was like, excuse my language. Oh my God, that guy has a lot of guts. Let's use. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe he was willing to stand up in front of 300 of his peers and say that he feels those things. And the fact that you just got out there and the first thing that you said is I'm three years old and I felt that, I don't know, as a young kid, when I had that feeling, and I still have that feeling to this day at times, as Rachel described with her suicidal ideation, like the concept of disassociation, the concept of feeling out of body, the concept of spirituality and your ego being different than your spirit and feeling outside of what your core is for some reason that's such a deep concept to so many that it feels like we veer away from having that that discussion and and since you shared at at three years old it's not my full story but i remember being six years old and i was going to like you know sunday school and I picked up a book on uh, Adam and Eve, right, uh, uh, in the library, and you're just looking at the pictures. And I guess even at six years old, my mind just started racing. Well, okay, if Adam and Eve were the first people on the planet, who came before that? And what came before that? What came before? And I couldn't stop my brain from like overthinking and not understanding the concept of like linearity of time. What is infinity? What does that even mean? And it freaked me out at six years old, where that's a fear and a and a almost like a, a an existential thought that has carried with me from the time I was six years old all the way till now. And there was such a long time where I didn't go to therapy, not because I thought there was anything wrong with therapy. It was just like, that just wasn't part of what my family did. And so it wasn't normalized for me. And then, so I held that thought in because I'm like, I'm the only freak who questions those things, who worries about those things. And then when you hold on to it, it builds and builds and builds and builds inside of you. And it sounds like the the, the uh, whole concept of the bowl being filled with water and overflowing resonated with both of you is that's part of that bowl filling with that water. I think too often in this space, because the term trauma gets thrown around so much and mm -hmm. trauma is a huge piece of what fills that bowl, what also fills that bowl is these what if scenarios. 
and these questions that we have and how our brain interprets an event, even if the event didn't happen, the what might happen if that happens tricks our brain into believing we're in that threat response already. And it ups that load that comes in on that central nervous system that builds and builds and builds over time. You unmuted yourself, Stacey. So I just sound like you wanted to chime in here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that trauma piece is huge. And a couple of things with that. First of all, everyone is walking around right now traumatized. Mm -hmm. We just had a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the reverberations of that, everybody has, has trauma from that. Um, mm -hmm. We just don't know to the extent. Um, so certainly there's that. The other piece of this is we don't have... In the English language, I was an English teacher, right? I had to do, take all those linguistics classes and do all that stuff. We, and, and when I talk to my international friends, one of the reasons why, and my, my coach is Finnish by, by um, you know, birth, right? He's, he's from Finland. And one of the reasons why I believe it worked, so, it worked so well with us and why, like, I was able to get some really good unlocks, aside from the, the fact that he's freaking amazing and phenomenal is because he uses language, the English language and words in a different way. And people, you know, I mean, that's European, but even more so on our, the East, the Eastern, right? The people who live in the East, if you think of Eastern, mm -hmm. culture, sure. they have way more words. They have different language for a variety of feelings. Yep. And we in the United States use emojis. Yep. We're, we're not, we're not basic just on emojis, which may, you know, there's research around that too, but the whole point being that we don't have words even to really talk about this. Even if we can talk about it, we need to create new language. And I think what you're doing here with your work is helping to do that. So people can tell their stories. That young man who stood up, how did he even know disassociation? I was a high school teacher. Uh yeah <laughs> that's mind-blowing that he understood that but it's right so yeah yeah no i look I, and it, it evan will laugh listening to this when you're talking about language and i know i've shared with rachel before is you know you talked about books that you've read i end up reading you know about polyvagal theory and then ended up getting connected with stephen porges and that whole group and learning about shifts to the nervous system and exactly for your reason is why we created something called the same here scale mm -hmm. where the language is thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking, and it's linear. And it talks about the balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system being tipped eventually to more sympathetic response over time because we live through more and more events. It's probably appropriate since you and Rachel were very vulnerable. I'll give a quick 411 on, on my trauma history. I, I, I was 35 years old and my brain fell apart and I, I was given all these labels of PTSD, OCD, depression. I was at the height of my career. I'm a chief revenue officer with a professional sports team. It's what I'd worked for my entire career. And then, bam, the rug gets pulled out from underneath me. And for two and a half years, I was given over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations, TMS therapy, was told my last resort was shock therapy. And I did 12 sessions of those and I felt no better leaving the hospital. So I thought I've tried everything that's out there. In a similar way that you're describing, Stacey, I hadn't yet delved into the other area of all the different ways to heal because what I was told was, okay, you now fit in the one in five category. <laughs> You've got the labels. You need a chemical to balance out your imbalance. 
And so eventually I met a woman and Rachel talked about in terms of uh, uh, sharing our stories. And then Stacy, you, you piggybacked on that, that the tool of sharing the stories is not just the sharing a story for others. It's also for ourselves. is I, I sat on the couch with this woman who's an integrative psychologist. I didn't know what the term integrative meant at the time. And she just, she says, Eric, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. I'm not going to ask you a ton of questions. The couch is your stage. You're a one person performer and I'm a one person audience. And my one question for you for the next hour is what's the story of your life? How would you tell it to me? And obviously it took me an hour to tell Dan, which will only take me a minute right now. I started eight years old and my older brother breaks his femur bone and has put a body cast for a year in homeschooled. Then he gets diagnosed with ALL, a children's form of leukemia. So five years of chemo and radiation at a time when, you know, cancer for childhood cancer was not the best prognosis, but miracle, he goes into remission. He's in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends a month after that, flies out of the back, lands on his head, cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eye. Heals from that, goes to college, gets a relapse of the same leukemia, has the child. The chemotherapy is much stronger the second time around, which does a great job on the cancer cell counts, but it beats up all of his healthy cells, and eventually his body goes into septic shock, 105 fever, he falls into a coma. He's in a coma for three months. We don't know if he's going to wake or have any brain activity. Miracle, he wakes, full cognitive faculties about him, but his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. So we all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is, donates a kidney to him. That's successful. I get my first job out of college at the NBA league office. So I'm thinking it's a blank slate, real world in front of me. Can't wait to put that all behind me. Three of my close friends pass away back to back to back of either misdiagnosed or undiagnosed heart conditions in their early 20s. So I share that when we, when we get into these things is because as you're describing the importance of trauma in this whole equation and our need to be open and share and kind of live in what we went through, I had absolutely no idea that those things had impacted my health. I just thought that's my life. I only live one life. That's the only life that I know. How do I know that there's a life outside of that, that people live without going through those things? Yes, you can compare the obstacles people have been through, but you don't know and understand that when you're watching family members and friends go through these things, how it's affecting you and your makeup, how it's affecting this connection between your brain and your body, you know, and, and I think what would be awesome and appropriate in the, in the 20 minutes that will go the rest of this way is we could certainly get into the intricacies of each of our stories, but, you know, Rachel, you've described the ideations you still have and that you know what to do now in that moment. Stacy, mm -hmm. you've talked about where you've gone um, to learn and that you have a coach, right? I certainly can go into the concept of start exercises of what we use to build gyms for our brain. But I think that would be helpful for people because one, the first piece is the vulnerability that brings people in and allows people to start hearing, you know, and I, and I know Mary Alice is on the call, so I'll give her a shout out in this way. When she shared with me certain things her family members maybe have gone through and it's like, I, I, I try to stop her and say, Mary Alice, listen to the story of what other people go through and then listen to how that shifts the nervous system and then listen to what your family member may be dealing with it. They're all various differences of the same type of thing. It's yeah. not like this person is strict down with this separate disease and disorder that no one's ever seen before. 
it's all how we've lived through challenges. And the fact that we're losing nine-year-olds to suicide, that means that challenging, stressful, and traumatic life events happen to all of us, even at young ages. And so the question is, what are we doing about it? What are these routines and what do they look like? So, Rachel, do you want to start us off with that? Yeah. So we um, so during my dark night of the soul. And, and again, I just want to say thanks to Stacey, too, because I it's uh, I, I like I not heard it read like that. I wondered where I, I use this phrase, dark night of the soul. I wondered where it, it came from. And, and <laughs> I also was, I love, I love when those little synchronicities happen. I know, right. And, and I'm like, you know, did that ever come across that? Was it on a television show? Like, what was it? But thank you. It was, and it, and I closed my eyes when I was listening to you read. And by the way, I could tell you were a teacher because you're a great reader. Uh, <laughs> You know, you you uh, you emphasize and you have intonation and all of those things. And so um, it really felt like that night. Right. And so what happened to me that night, and I think it's a really important distinction, is um, I fell prey to something that I, I think a lot of people do in, in, in our conversation today and in the world is this idea of not being able to differentiate between facts and feelings and feelings will lie to you. Um, feelings are, are temporary and they're fleeting, right? And uh, and we can't live alone by our feelings. And that night, my feelings told me that I could not call anybody. It was too late, and that I would burden them if if I called them at three a.m. when this was going on. So I suffered by myself. And when in fact that was a feeling, that was not a fact, right? The fact is, I'm I'm loved. I'm precious. I'm gonna make it. I'm a warrior. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think about now that makes me shudder um, is the fact that I almost took myself out and I'm going to try not to cry, but I almost took myself out of this world over wood and nails. You know, one of the things that I was so worried about was losing my house. And um, I was worried about I, I bought my first house and I was worried about losing my house. Now, I couldn't you know, I didn't know what was going to happen with the boyfriend and my, I couldn't bring my mom back. But I was so embarrassed that that I was going to lose this house, even though I'd done valiant things and taking care of my mom, which I would never change. And I and I and I make that emphasis whenever I'm speaking to people. I say wood and nails, right? Like, you know, your life is so much more precious than wood and nails. And and so I I suffered alone. And so my business manager happens to be an AA sponsor. And he helped me create what we call a battle plan. And the battle plan, the first part of the battle plan is identifying three people that you're going to call if you are on top of the world and you just won a seven-day cruise on a luxury liner and, baby, you're going to Mexico. I mean, you are going. You know, you're you're taking them. You won the lottery. You might pay off their debts. You just love them that much. But they're also, conversely, the same people you're going to call if you have a flat tire if you have only ramen noodles in your in your pantry, uh, they are they are those people high or low, because I remember specifically for, for my situation, I think a lot of people can take something from this is when I finally began to talk about it, all those people that do love me that did love me. They, they called me crying. They reached out crying. They said, it broke my heart that you didn't feel like you could call me in that such a vulnerable time when you were going through that well, a spiritual battle, exactly like you, you quoted, Stacey, and, 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 you know, hours long. And so, um, so the first part of it is, is identifying those three people and telling them, we call them 
in our slang, we call them, and I'm changing the narrative, your ride or dies. And they are the people that, again, you can say, you call and you let them know today, um, hey, if life is good or life is bad, I'm, you're my person. You're one of my people. And people also ask us a lot, what if I only have one? Well, you focus on that one and then you work on your, your friendship skills and cultivating your friendship skills and being the kind of friend that you would want in your life to other people so that we can work on having more than one. But so you identify those people, you tell them, and then you ask them to go tell their three people. And then you ask them to go t- tell their three people. And so those are things that you you know can do that create a ripple on a pond. That's the first part of the battle plan. The other part is developing coping strategies. And, and I'm going to add this very quickly. Only you know if you need to call the crisis hotline. Only you know if you need to call the crisis hotline and then text your three people. Only know, you know if you need to text your first person and then call the crisis hotline. You know, you know the order, but, and, and we say, if you can't get your one, two, third person, your fourth call is to a crisis hotline. But again, your, your first call may be to a crisis hotline and only, you know, that, but beyond that, what we've learned beyond that battle plan and identifying your three people, because isolation, um, is, can be, can be devastating. And also, you know, uh, isolation is, you know, as a, what is shame and isolation? I, I heard this said um, by an author, Nona Jones. It said it's a, it's a lot like mold. It grows in the dark. And, uh, and I just thought that was really, really powerful. But beyond that, how do we have these coping skills in the moment, right? When I have these fleeting thoughts that come across, you know, my mind, of, I should just open this car door right now, you know, and roll out, you know, what, what, am, what do I do? Like when I have a jarring thought like that. Okay, I have coping skills. And what are those coping skills? Every person's are going to be different. Um, You know, whether that is journaling, dancing, praying, you know, again, um, speaking to somebody, um, going outside and running around the building, doing whatever your coping skill is. You need to identify that just like we have a battle plan for work. We have we have plays for football. We have plays for sports. We have all these things that we battle for. Why don't we battle for our mind and our mental health? And so you need to have those coping strategies that you know will work. For me, it is it is immediately if I have a thought like that, my God, you know, of, of talking to myself and, and telling myself what is good and what is real and what is right and what is true. Um, for me, it's prayer. For some people, it might be meditation. But having those things beyond um, just calling your people, and it's not just because that, that makes it sound like it's uh, it's dismissive, but it's really having those coping strategies and knowing what it is, having it on hand, and being able to uh, fully identify it and say this works for me, and then continuing to go back to it and saying this this is not working for me, and that may be even something larger of saying, hey, I'm I'm gonna call my people to remind me who I am at this moment because I'm having a hard day or a hard moment. But I'm also going to make a therapy appointment. I'm also going to, I'm, it's not working out with my therapist right now. I'm going to make a different therapy appointment. But what are we doing in those moments in between? That's what we want to start talking to people about. And I think it goes right back to the beginning of what we said. And that is when we have conversations like this, we normalize, oh, wow, somebody else is dealing with that. Somebody else has those fleeting, crazy thoughts of, and I say crazy because it is crazy to think about rolling out of a car, <laughs> but, but it crossed my mind. It yeah. did. And and I'm not ashamed to say it because maybe if I say it, somebody else will feel less weird, less crazy, less, you know, like something is wrong with me. And maybe they'll start to think about their battle plan. too. But you didn't but you didn't you didn't choose to feel that. That's the thing. No, like it no. into your head. Yes. And, 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 and I'm going to combine a couple of things that you said. You said when I felt that way at first, 
I felt like I was a burden. Okay. So now here's thought number two. Thought number one is I can open up the door and roll out. Thought number two is I'm a burden. Neither of those things are things that you are making up. They're thoughts that come to our brain yes. because we're wired for this thing called neuroception, which is what's the thread around us. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, the narrative that's playing in my mind is not who I am as a person. Right. And it's challenging those thoughts. And so when I said I was going to combine it to something else, so with the, the phrase that you used about growing in the dark, right? The one, the way that I've heard it is what stays in the dark grows in the dark. Yep. So for everyone out there who hears Rachel talking about suicidal ideation and then talks about, she talks about her battle plan. Here's the issue is that most people who have these fleeting, Oh, my mind for one sixteenth of one second went to what happens if I open the door it went to, I'm over a bridge. What happens if I turn my car wheel a little to the right and it goes over the side? I'm on the edge of a building. What happens if I step over the side of that building? And we go, hey, is it that big of a deal that I'm feeling those things? Because I don't really need to open up. It sounds a little, like you said, crazy to open up and share that. So it's not that big a deal. Then here's what happens. It stays in the dark. You don't talk about it. It grows yeah. in that dark. Yeah. And then that thought overwhelmed you and you have no battle plan at all to be able to overcome what literally just ravages your system. Yep. And 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 now you're trying to fight basically a huge monster with a little toothpick. And you can't do that. And that's the reason why the three of us are up here sharing these things. And as Stacey's going to open up about whether she calls it her battle plan or her gym for her brain or her mix and her toolbox and all the different ways and strategies in which we, we call the analogies that we have for, for all these things is we're trying to sound the alarm bell for everyone out there that you don't need to be this thing called sad, depressed person for suicide to be something that takes you out the same way you don't need to be this person who walks around with this pain down the left side of your chest and your shoulder and your jaw to have a heart attack. It can come out of nowhere because these things build silently. So if you're ignoring them and you don't have a plan, that's when the rug can get taken out from underneath you and we can lose you. And we don't want that to happen. That's why we're talking. Um, Stacy. Yeah. Would you mind opening up about your whatever, whatever analogy you use to describe what your plan is? Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I love the battle plan and I love that you had a boss a boss, a manager, yep. however you said it, yeah, that you could be open about this with, that you were safe enough with, knowing that he was empathetic enough, and not only empathetic enough, but he was resourceful yes. to be able to provide you with support. What a gift. What a gift. And, uh, and Stacey, can I share something really briefly? Thank please. you for saying that. You know, in the, in the, it was, it was not long. It was about a day or two afterwards. I actually got up and did that serious show the next morning and I was sniffling the whole way through it. And I remember my, my producer saying, are you okay? And I said, oh yeah, it's just an allergy attack. Meanwhile, I'd gone to the dark night of the soul the night before. Right. <laughs> okay. and, and, and I battled with whether to, to, to talk about it or not. And there were two voices in my head and one of them was saying, you're pathetic. You're weak. You can't talk about this. You, 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 no one will book you to speak. You're mm. a loser. Look at you. You know, you, you, you can't keep anybody. That was the thing in my head. You know, you lose everything. You're a failure. 
And, but the other voice said, and whether it's a faith perspective or wherever you come from, for me, it's faith. But the other voice said, oh, my girl, my girl, you're a warrior. You mm-hmm. go and tell the world, tell them they're not defective. Tell them they're not broken. Tell them they're not weak. And Stacy, I began to talk about it and it blew the lid off of a movement that was already had great steam and was doing great things. And so thank you for saying that because I'm so grateful for Jason, for my manager. I'm so grateful that I just pushed through and made that video and, and that it went viral and that I began mm-hmm. to talk about it and that it changed really the trajectory of my life mm-hmm. just by being vulnerable. So thank you for saying that. Mm, that's beautiful. What a beautiful thing. And, and I just feel like this shame, you know, even when you were saying like the voices and what they're saying to you, shame is such a liar. And when we expose shame and when we call it out and we take that, like that mold analogy and put it out there, it, it diminishes instantly. And then we're sitting there like, what, what, who am I now? And we have an opportunity. And I think, you know, you, you were talking about like the process or the tools or what, what the, you know, what, what do I have to offer? And I think really my offering to anybody who would be listening to this would be a couple of things. Milton Erickson, a, a psychologist researcher early in the United States, um, talks about people and you're okay. You're okay. And so the first thing I would say is like reminding yourself, if, if you are alive right now, you are okay. If you are hearing this, you're okay. Let's just, you're okay. Starting there, right? The second thing is giving yourself permission. I know for me, what was particularly hard, like I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a high performer. And that the, the way I executed was I, I used a lot of pressure, internal pressure that I put on myself and had, had certain ways of doing things and certain ways of being and certain ways of getting things done. And this is, this is the pressure you need to do. Da, 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 da. And, and I, what I really started to do in, in some of those practices that I shared with you as I built out my practices is I have to give myself permission. I get up at 4 a.m. every day. Not every day, but I try to get up by 4 a.m. pre-alarm. Like, this is what I want my body to do naturally, right? And I've got a couple of things that, for me, are first of day. And I don't always do them in the same order in the most particular way, but a meditation, time for myself, right? Journaling. I've got great questions that I can sit and reflect on. Um, Some of the questions, in fact, I read them today. Today was the day where um, when I went through I am proud of myself for this. Because of this, I have accomplished this. And then I just go back, I add a couple things. And my mentor has said, you read them out loud to yourself. And so this morning I sat on the couch and I, I, I read them out loud to myself, right? Um, I've, got, I've got things sitting, right now I have on my desk my little um, diffuser. I think that's what it's called, right? You put the little oils in yep. there. I've got, <laughs> I've, got, I've got a little rose quartz that's like a palm stone that if I'm on a Zoom and I'm starting to get nervous, I can hold in my hand. I had to give myself permission to explore and find what was right for me. I could never take Rachel's battle plan. That would feel forced to me. That would not, I didn't want a program. I wanted to figure out for me, I wanted to learn, I needed to learn to trust myself. And the only way that I could trust that I was capable and okay 
to live and be alive in this life would be to know that I have the inner resources and I'm resourceful and I can find what I need when I'm alone and I'm in because those dark, the dark night of the soul, it's, it's not a one-time event, friend. <laughs> it's not a one-time <laughs> event. It's a lifetime journey. And so um, be nice to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Tell yourself you're okay. Um, I think those, those things for me have really helped me grow. So it's interesting because you both have different battle plans, so to speak. You said your battle plan may, na- may not work for me and mine not, might not work for you. Yep. And one of the first things I noticed, like when I got in this space, which I don't think, you know, Rachel sounds, you know, the way that you got into this space was because things were happening and then you shifted careers. I, things were happening to me. I shifted careers, yep. you know, you, me, from too. Three... me too. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, things happen to us. And so the first thing that I noticed when I was in this space, since, since we can go all the way to the end of the spectrum, since, since Rachel started us off with great vulnerability is suicide and suicidal ideations. I was wowed by, there were so many, you know, plans out there, battle plans, let's call them out there for what to do for other people. Look around to see if they're giving away possessions, look to see if they made a plan and there was no one talking about, like, what do you do? <laughs> what is the first person suicide prevention that we can we can templatize in a way that, to to Stacey's point, isn't too templatized where it doesn't it's so rigid, it doesn't work for people. But at the same time, it's simple and gives steps. And my facetious comment towards that is because we all grew up where they taught us stop, drop and roll for fire safety and a hell of a lot less people or fewer people i should say ever catch on fire than Mm -hmm. have suicidal ideation great point every single person in the so so we created an acronym lifesaver l-i-f-e it's four different steps there's a video that goes along with it everything's free it's posters but it's i i'm only sharing that you go to samehereglobal.org s-a-m-e-h-e-r-e global.org to download it and and to get the stories of parents who watch the video with their kids of you know teachers who watch the videos with their students and talk about it each year and you know it's rachel you know like some of the folks in it's kevin hines and it's hayden hurst and and people who've been open and it's men and women and it's different backgrounds to show that different people have experienced these ideations but at the same time to show that you know why not talk about a plan when you have them that's going to work for you right to have a step-by-step process that's going to be your process whether it's more external like it is for rachel whether it's more internal like it is for stacy we each need to have what that plan of attack is and i'll say this and and stacy maybe can back me up from a neuroscience level is the first time i ever experienced a major suicidal ideation the thought that was going through my mind was, oh my God, I'm an alien. I'm the only person in the world who ever feels this way. I can't believe that these thoughts are going through my mind. Why am I staring back to Rachel's point of trigger warning? Why am I staring at a bottle of pills? And is my mind going swallow, 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 swallow it. And I don't want to swallow it. Why is that the largest voice in my head? And all that happened was the ideations were even stronger and kept building more because I was so afraid because no one had ever talked to me about those things before. And I thought I was quote, losing my mind and I'm done right now. And if we had been able to have conversations like this back then, 
I would have been able to recognize and realize, like, you don't need to freak out, Eric. This is awful that you feel this way. And yes, it feels like you're in a dark tunnel. And yes, it feels like there's no way out. But you can rationalize with yourself and go, it is a fleeting feeling that's not going to be there forever. And you can talk yourself through this. Now, that's not how everyone, to, to Rachel's point, sometimes you need someone else to talk you out of it. But what I, the reason I share that openly is the only way we can make that sympathetic response go down when people have these ideations, whether it's the first time, the third time, the fifth time, and instead of the, in, the, the impulse error messages getting stronger and stronger and stronger, when we have these conversations that normalize how they feel to us and we discuss what it's like going on in our brain, something that's been so taboo in this space for so long, ooh, you can't share that because there's going to be a contagion effect. Well, okay, my, my flip to that is, well, if you don't talk about it, it remains in the dark, it remains in shame, no one opens up about it, and then we continue to lose people worse and worse and worse. So which way do you want to have it, right? So I hope, I hope the, the, the conversation that everyone will be able to take from this and the takeaways that everyone will be able to take from this is, one, you heard stories of vulnerability, creating that safe space of... I can share openly and I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, I actually wear it as a badge of honor right now that I've been able to overcome a lot of those scary things that have got on my mind before it was normalized to talk about it and feeling emboldened by that. I love that Nate Rachel even calls her plan a battle plan because I think the shift that we need to make in this space is having bolder, brasher, more out there like, hey, I go through it like everyone else. Yeah, like I'm a little crazy also, right? Like th those things are what normalizes. And then you heard cold plunge, you heard meditation, you heard mindfulness. We call them star exercises, stress and trauma, active releasing and rewiring. You're doing a gym for your brain. To, to, to normalize for everyone, and I, and I mentioned Mary Alice is on this call and then I'll have Rachel and Stacy wrap with whatever they want to wrap with. You know, when, when Mary Alice has been navigating this with a family member, it sounds to her, and I'm using her as my litmus test on what I hear every day from every from so many other people, is what gets hammered in our head by the powers that be are med management and talk therapy, med management and talk therapy. So when someone's family member is struggling, that's where they're bringing them to. And then when those of us like Rachel, Stacey, and I discuss things like cold plunges and meditation, yoga, and mindfulness, and breathing practices, and tapping, and EMDR, and all these things that are out there. People are like, yeah, but but does that stuff really work? And, and the, the hilarious things, one, those things are not alternative. Those things are the things that have most of them, except for the more recent ones that have been invented over the last 10 years or so. Most of them have been around for thousands of years and have helped people. So <laughs> they're not the only may, may I add one, not to interrupt, yes, I mean, no, I did go ahead. but, um, you know, I'm, I'm particular, I, I did a lot of research around like the ketamine therapy, what you're seeing in like things like mind bloom yep. and stuff like that. There are new therapies. I think the innovation is going to continue to, to grow mm -hmm. that people who maybe would be a little hesitant for some of those things potentially, mm -hmm can really start to access in and the results are compelling. 
where people are, they're compelling. The research is, I I was just reading a study out of John Hopkins. The research is really compelling. And so I think as we, my mom's a nurse, like as I've told my mother some things, right, about my mushrooms, she's like, oh my God, (laughs) right, what are you doing? But I'm like, listen, mom, there are, there are research, there's research out there, there's alternative uh, ways to think about this. And so I tell people, you know, do your research, Get out there, start to see what's new and innovative, because by the time your physician, your doctor in your local area, your local therapist is going to get that information for you, it's going to be a while. We're, <laughs> we're just on the cutting edge right now, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's not what they're taught in med school. Let's be honest about that. And then how long does it take for med school to change? And so it's on the rest of us to experiment a little. But yeah. I, what I'll share with experimenting is like, I've never done anything that has been even with getting my brain shocked at the seizure which i would never do again because that was told that that was the last resort to me Mm. i don't think other than like major physical head trauma i don't think there's many things that we can do that get us to a place where there's irreparable damage and sorry you should never have done that modality before now maybe that's just my take on it but i think the neuroplasticity in our brain allows us to try different things when you go to the gym And you're trying to, let's say, you know, as a guy, you're trying to get a bigger chest muscle because you need to play, you know, be able to stock block in football and you need to be able to guard someone in the post in basketball. You can do push-ups, you can do bench press, you can do incline, you can do decline. Which one is better? There is no better. Different things work for different people. So even as you're saying ketamine or some of the psychedelics that are out there, the list of the other quote things that they call alternate modalities Different things work for different people. And the, the, the willingness to try different things and not look at it like med management and talk therapy are what I try and I only do those. And if those fail after I do them for 15 years, I'm willing to try these other alternative things. You're going to find yourself chasing your tail for 15 years. And, and can I add to just to both of what you're saying? I yeah. work with a... Uh, a a client. I do some coaching on the side, joy coaching. Just uh, people that want to start movement, <laughs> people that want to write books, people that just kind of want to level up, right? Um, in different areas of their life, find more joy, have deeper relationships, different things like that. So, I worked with this client for six months, and he had um, just exactly what you're both saying. I'm affirming it. Um, he drove up on a gas station and literally saved a gas station attendant. He was being murdered um, in front of his eyes. And he stayed in rural Texas. He knew that the cops were not going to get there in time. So he had a choice to leave and drive away and, and not assist um, or get out of his car. And, and he did. And he saved the gas station attendant's life from being Uh, stabbed and he saved the two young men from a life sentence versus attempted murder. So this man had been through a lot, not to mention a lot of childhood trauma. He had major PTSD. He said, Rachel, it was like a dark cloud hanging over my head, you know, all the time. And he did psilocybin treatments and he took uh, under the supervision of somebody um, again with this. It was was a very open-minded therapist um, he went into some pro he, he got, he put himself up for some programs, you know, sadly he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, uh, they said a candidate and he's like, what, what are you talking about? I've been suffering, you know, this long, yada, yada, yada. But they, he, um, he did it and he has experienced great relief from PTSD and this Yay! dark cloud. But yeah. some, and, and I'm like, they're not called magic mushrooms for no reason. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
hello. And he's, I mean, light years away from where he was. And he said it, uh, he was free from, from the PTSD for like six, eight months. And then it started to creep back. And so now he's going to go back and do it again. And so, yes, be yeah. curious be about curious. yourself. Be curious about life. Be curious about treatments mm. for the rest of your life. Mm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And what a heroic, what a, what a hero that man is. What a hero. I, I, I love to see how many people in his case would do what he did. That's a, it's amazing. And I, maybe it, maybe it speaks to, it's almost like a great analogy for his willingness to step into that situation was also part of his willingness to try something different, right? He's, there's a bravery there. And, it, and, and how do we lessen that it's going to take bravery to try all these other ways to heal is by talking about these things and, and sharing how normalized they are. You know, I think yoga did it well, though I would, I would say yoga kind of rode the tails of the Lululemon. <laughs> is this a, a, you know, a sexy, like trendy thing versus people fully understanding what yoga is. I still, we're not, we're not there yet, but yoga's done probably the best job of these, what are considered alternate modalities out there of getting more, you're seeing yoga studios pop up. And now we need to do that normalization talk and all these other modalities that are out there to show people like, Hey, if I'm have my hand on my nose and I'm doing this thing called an alternate nostril breathing, I'm not picking my nose. I'm doing a breath work. That's helping me feel better. That's relaxing my vagus nerve. That's dampening my amygdala function. That's making me feel better. These are the things we need to talk about, and these are the spaces that that it will happen in. So, Rachel and Stacey, anything else as we sign off here you guys want to share, or or have you been talked out since we went over an hour here? No, I'm good. I just want to, um, you know, invite anybody that's listening to this later on. Um, our website is imchangingthenarrative.org, the letter I, the letter M, changingthenarrative.org. And then I have a, a book coming out um, called Relentless Joy, How to Find, Keep, and Cultivate Joy in a Dark World. And you can find it on Amazon. And, um, you know, I'd love for people to grab that, too, because I talk about a lot of this um, from a faith perspective. I do go into that away from my movement, which is not faith-based, but I talk about what works for me um, in that book. And so I, I love getting uh, messages from people, emails. My email goes straight to me. You, Nobody's opening my emails for me. Um there's no gatekeeper. And so I just love to connect with people. And if somebody hears this down the road and they say, wow, you know, that conversation that you three had and that, that everybody had on this call, which I, I just love where we went, by the way, we went all over the place. It was just <laughs> awesome. Like it, that's what happens when you have unscripted conversations. And I just want to thank you too. Thank you for allowing me to be me, giving me a platform and allowing me just to, to speak from my heart. I appreciate you both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rachel, so nice to meet you. Thank you for, um, Eric, having this space and the work that you are doing. It's really important work. Um, it's meaningful work. It's work that um, hopefully will continue to evolve and um, exponentially grow, um, especially in schools with, with, uh, the, uh, in this country, right? We, we need this in our country. Um, so thank you for that. And um, I'm just thankful that I had a, an opportunity to share. If somebody was listening and they wanted to find me, um, if you put in Dr. Stacy Gonzalez, you'll probably find me somewhere. So um, happy to connect with anybody that I can help. Awesome. Well, I, I um, in wrapping up, I'll say the the hour plus flew by, and I think when you're talking with people who are passionate about similar things, 
um, you're not looking at your watch and, and, and you're saying, Oh my God, that's, that's, I felt that too. I, I've been through that as well. And it's, it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's part of the medicine that makes us feel better and feel whole. And so I thank you both for, um, for adding, you know, your, your, your true self to it, to Rachel's point about it being unscripted. I think unscripted conversations are always better conversations. Um, you know, Rachel shared, her resources of her book, uh, you know, where we, you can find us at, at same here underscore global at most of our social channels. Uh, one thing I'll add is we just released a 17 hour course. It's uh, it's with Stephen Porges from Polyvagal. It's with Dr. Vincent Folletti from the ACE study. He chaired the adverse childhood experience study. And then these uh, 14 practitioners of different modalities, it's available. You know, you could, you could find it on our website, samehereglobal.org reach out, contact us, um, and then through Maryland University of Integrative Health. And I share, of all the resources, I'm going to share that one specifically only because, you know, 17 hours is rich in in information, but in all the stuff that we spoke about here, you know, both Stacy and Rachel talked about there, there being a need for what your plan is and those plans being slightly different. So if we can give many different ways for people to find healing, I don't think there's a better service that we can do vulnerability and then healing modalities, those two together. So thank you to Evan and Beluga and that whole crew for having us on really appreciate uh, that. And for Mary Alice for being our number one fan <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully whoever listens to this down the road, you'll reach out. Uh, you got everyone's contact information and we'll be able to keep the conversation going. As Rachel said, keep the narrative going. So thank you so much again, Evan. You guys are awesome. So we'll um, we'll cut it here. We'll edit this one. I'll send it over to the team. They'll put it on. They sent me the links over. So we're on Spotify with this. We'll be on Apple.